Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us on ADH, the Organisation for the Appropriate Farewell to our remarkable Queen Elizabeth continues. Some stoic performances by her number one son and only daughter, Charles and Anne. I'll obviously have something to say about that. What's going on in New South Wales politics? The legislature is full of laws about anti-discrimination and fair work. Well, the senior minister, Stuart Ayres, loses his job because his leader believed he had questions to answer over whether he breached the Ministerial Code of Conduct. You've heard my views on this. The question should have been answered before he had his job taken away from him. But now a senior barrister appointed by his leader, Perrette, to investigate the issue has found, not to my surprise, that Stuart Ayres, Deputy Liberal Leader, one of the best performers for the government, had complied with his obligations under the code but he doesn't get his job back. If he was working at Coles or Woolworths, there'd be headlines about injustice everywhere. What sort of show are they running in Macquarie Street? They can't even fix up the road, I might add, that takes you past the parliament to the famous Opera House landmark. It's not only a goat track that sophisticates it, it is a motoring disgrace and a risk. And I don't know, I might add, talking about disgraces, what the Sony Music Group are up to. The head of digital has taken to Instagram with a provocative message on the death of the Queen. One Sophie Patterson, who's apparently head of digital, criticised the monarchy and those who support it. And I quote, Today we mourn all the stolen, violated and traumatised lives who were affected and destroyed during Queen Elizabeth's reign. Today is a brutal reminder that war criminals will be honoured while entire populations and societies bear the battle scars of colonial, genocidal violence, invasion, religious persecution and white supremacy, unquote. Oh, what else? I'm sure she could have added a few things to all of that. Well, to you, Sophie, whatever your name is, the Queen was head of the Commonwealth, the defender of freedom and democracy. Under those freedoms, you, seemingly a rather twisted woman, are entitled to your views. But someone, someone should tell you that you're part of a depressing minority. Well, nothing depressing about tonight's show. We are always invigorating, informative and entertaining. Well, at least I hope so. New Zealand are experiencing legislative changes similar to those foreshadowed by a voice to the parliament. I'll speak to the former New Zealand Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters. I'll have more to say about the public holiday to mourn. The public are not happy and extraordinary revelations about the forces behind climate alarmism. Revelations by Lord Christopher Monckton, a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher, to whom I've often spoken. So strap yourself in. It's all happening here. You are watching ADH and around the world, I'm Alan Jones. Well, as days pass, it still is very difficult to articulate both the circumstances and the grief surrounding the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Scotland has been a cesspool of division over monarchs since the 13th century. Yet there was a simple oak coffin draped in the royal standard of Scotland in the back of a hearse and the body of Elizabeth II, the longest reigning British monarch, was being driven past mourners who lined the streets for hours in their thousands. As King Charles has called it, it is her last great journey. 
The Edinburgh Royal Mile, which I know well, is like the high streets in most English towns, but it's bigger. It runs from the famed Edinburgh Castle to the gates of Holyrood, the Scottish home of the British monarch. People spilled out everywhere, and those in flats above the shops hung out of windows. Heads were bowed, some cried. As Rob Harris beautifully puts it, quote, fathers stood with daughters, sons comforted mothers, and smartphones were thrust towards the sky. Children held up their Paddington bears. If you were not moved, you had no soul, unquote. In the six hour journey from Balmoral to Edinburgh, in parts, farmers formed a guard of honour on their tractors. And then there's Princess Anne, what a woman, a no-nonsense woman, the Queen's only daughter, her face etched with grief. She'd been by her mother's side for her final days. She'd accompanied the Queen's coffin on its six hour journey from Balmoral Castle to Edinburgh. At the Palace of Holyrood, Princess Anne was at the front of a reception party. How she managed, I've no idea. As her mother's coffin was carried in, she curtsied deeply, looking devastated. Princess Anne, an Olympian in her own right, whose beautiful daughter Zara won a silver medal at the Olympics in 2012, magnificent horsewomen, and interests she had in common with her mother. But this was a different world for the distraught Princess Anne. To take her mother, the Queen, from her beloved Scottish Balmoral Castle six and a half hours to Edinburgh was anyone's definition of traumatic. She'd been with her mother since her health deteriorated rapidly last Thursday, along with Charles. She was at her mother's bedside for the final hours. King Charles had wanted his sister to look after their mother in her final farewell, that she's doing it with immense dignity and unsurpassed emotional control is an extraordinary thing. Anne was always close to the Queen, and it's understood she helped the Balmoral gamekeepers and staff select the white flowers, including the Queen's favourite sweet peas for the wreath that was placed on top of the coffin. The heavy oak casket bearing the Queen had been made for Elizabeth more than 30 years ago, made from English oak at Elizabeth's request. Most people don't have their coffin, I know, made decades before they die, but for the Queen, no one was taking any chances. As Andrew Leverton, who runs the firm of Royal Funeral Directors said, it's not something you can make in just a day. There are fitments on the coffin lid, which allow the instruments of state to be fitted, unquote. It's 11 a.m. Tuesday morning over there now as I speak to you. The King and the Queen consort on a punishing itinerary will today fly to Belfast and travel by car to Hillsborough Castle to view an exhibition on the Queen's relationship with Northern Ireland. Just as in the Palace of Westminster and then at Holyrood, the King will receive a message of condolence led by the Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly and then King Charles will give his reply. This is punishing stuff for a family enduring grief. There'll be a short reception at Hillsborough Charles and Camilla will then meet all the leaders from all the major faiths in Northern Ireland and attend a prayer service at St Anne's Cathedral. The King and Queen Consort will then return to London. Can you believe all this? In Edinburgh, just after 5pm their time, 2am tomorrow morning our time, the Royal Air Force will fly the Queen's coffin from Edinburgh Airport to RAF Northolt, just north of Heathrow Airport. Princess Anne again, 
the Queen's only daughter, will accompany the coffin on the flight. Once the coffin lands in England at 8pm, 5am tomorrow morning our time, it'll be transported about 23 kilometres by car to Buckingham Palace and placed on trestles in the bow room, one of the 775 rooms in Buckingham Palace. Various chaplains to the King, appointed by the Queen, will take turns in keeping watch over the coffin. Tomorrow, the procession to Westminster will begin. More than three quarters of a million people are expected to descend on Westminster, with queues expected to reach up to eight kilometres. The Queen will lie in state, and unprecedented numbers of mourners are expected to try to visit the Houses of Parliament in the Palace of Westminster. The number of people on the streets of London is, expect, is estimated to rival the one million who came out for the funeral of Diana. Security sources have acknowledged that the terror threat has changed substantially since 1997. The security operation will be unprecedented. The Queen's coffin will be on a catafalque, which is a raised platform in Westminster Hall, draped in the royal standard with the orb and scepter on top. Rob Harris has summed up this splendidly when he wrote, and I quote, these are remarkable days. It's not an overstatement to say that if civilization lasts another 500 years, these days will still be talked about and written about in the same way that Shakespeare ensured the great kings and queens lived on through literature. Now, there's a very interesting editorial in today's Sydney Morning Herald, which offers a warning about the dangers of hubris. I hate that word, it's a fancy word, it just means overconfidence. It's issuing a warning to Anthony Albanese. Now, we in Australia are saddled with this notion of a voice to parliament, put simply, alter the constitution to incorporate race. That was once called apartheid. I made reference last week to what's happening in New Zealand, and I'll come to that in a moment. But the editorial in today's Sydney Morning Herald refers to the New Zealand Prime Minister Ardern, whom I've always regarded as out of her depth. But as the editorial says today, quote, in July, Ardern was shown around the world, shaking the hand of former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and was described by a branding specialist. Don't you like that? I've no idea what they are, branding specialist, as having, quote, cleverly attracted international acclaim during her time as PM, making her a great political brand, unquote. Ardern, that is. The editorial goes on, but as her international renown has grown, her popularity with New Zealand has rapidly declined. Ardern, it says, has done little to deal with her country's housing affordability crisis and the cost of living. New polling suggests that New Zealand's right-leaning coalition has enough support to form government, and Ardern's polling is at its lowest level since she became Prime Minister in 2017. I should point out that in 2017, Ardern and Labor got 37% of the vote. Bill English and the Nationals got 44%, but she became Prime Minister. I made reference last week about this race issue and a voice to the Parliament about which we know not much, except that a certain group of people would have a voice and they would be Indigenous Australians. Though if you're born here, you are Indigenous, aren't you? But no one else would be allowed to vote. Well, I mentioned in New Zealand, the Ardern government under a three waters plan, seeking to confiscate the water assets of New Zealand's 67 councils and hand their governance to an equal number of unelected tribal members, asset confiscation. Well, Winston Peters has had an extraordinary political career in New Zealand. He is of mixed parentage. 
his father being a Maori and his mother of Scottish descent. He entered the New Zealand Parliament for the first time in 1979, which is 43 years ago. He became Deputy Prime Minister and Treasurer in coalition with the National Party after the 1996 election. Several years later, he formed government with the Labor Prime Minister, Helen Clark, and served as Minister for Foreign Affairs. After the 2017 election, his party, New Zealand First, held the balance of power and formed a coalition government with Jacinda Ardern, and Winston Peters became Deputy Prime Minister and Minister for Foreign Affairs. He left New Zealand politics following the 2020 election, but he's recently made an extraordinary speech which should resonate with Australians and particularly our New Zealand viewers. He delivered the speech last month in Warkworth, which is about 64 kilometres north of Auckland, titled Co-Governance is Not Democracy. And he said, quote, recent political developments in New Zealand are of grave concern to all those who believe in democracy, freedom and the rule of law. Winston Peters joins me. Winston, thank you for your time on this very, very important issue. We've got elements of this at work in this country. You have said that, quote, recent political developments are justifiable cause for alarm at where our country's democracy is heading. Can you just amplify that point? Well, I perhaps can best describe what happened in South Africa, where they strove to get rid of apartheid and have a unified government and also talk about the American Civil Rights Movement where the black people sought to access the best white institutions. These were pathways where, in the end, the unity and working together was the objective, and it's difficult to get there. But in New Zealand, we're heading down the very reverse path towards apartheid, towards separatism, towards asset ownership based on race, and the very ownership in that system will not be the Maori people owning it, but an elite in the Maori people out of control and out of uh, being accountable. Yes, and I it's mean, the worst possible that, that, option for this country. Yeah, that's a very powerful point. I mean, so these Iwi people, they're the largest Maori groupings, am I right? And in Maori, Iwi, Iwi, I-W-I roughly means people or nation. Now, your father was a Maori, which gives you some authority to speak on this. Is there a move yes. now to give overriding power to this group? There is a secret agenda without any mandate, without any vote, without any pre-election campaigning by the Labor Party out of left field straight after the 2020 election where they've been pushing a separatist agenda where there will be this very innocent word called co-governance, but what it really means is two governments. And when you have two governments, as in the three waters argument, the majority will say will go to the serious minority. Now, if I can just stress what the minority is. Maoridom has got a great future in this country, but only if they are educated and trained to be equal because they have been prepared to be. This is about equality itself, which is the essence of our foundation. But what you've got here is that with the huge dilution and intermarriage of Maori with uh, incoming settlers, post-1840, there are very few people who can claim really to be of majority Maori descent, way less than not 14%, which is the figure they kept using, but way less than 4%. Now, you see the extraordinary thing here? You've got people with one part Maori and 512 
joining in the numbers that are making claims mm. way out of any proportion to accuracy, mm. genealogy, or mm. dare I say truth. Well, see, one thing that impressed me about that speech is true of our Aboriginal population here. You have said that there are four critical things that Maoris want, the common sense, safe, affordable housing, ready access to the health system should they need it, access to a first, first world education, and first world incomes. Now, Ardern is not delivering that. Why has she embarked on these separatist policies? I mentioned last week the Three Waters policies. What's the rationale for all of this? Well, there's two answers to that. One is that you had a secret agenda to do it all along and you didn't care about the real things that Maori need. And what I outlined is what, when I was in Australia working there as a young man, all Australians needed and everywhere I've been in the world, that's what people need, those four fundamental things to be free and equal. Yep. Now, what you've got here is, of course, a sinister agenda to put into place a re-engineered world the way they see it. Mm. Very left-wing, dare I say it's worse than socialist. Yep. But here's the real rub. If you wanted to not be found out for neglecting the fundamental things that human beings need, you need a, uh, a sideshow. You need something to mask what's not happening. Mm. So you give them all this, a plethora of promises mm. about all these good things we're doing here, 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 here. But it doesn't concern no. 95% of the Maori world. Yes, that's right. I mean, this three waters policy, confiscating water assets, which are owned by Maoris and non-Maoris from 67 democratically elected councils and handing them to an equal number of unelected tribal members and council representatives. I read comments by the former Labor Minister Richard Preble, who said a coup was underway in New Zealand by the Maori tribal elite. Do you agree with that? Uh, Mr Preble's been reading my mail. <laughs> yeah. And he's reading it back to you and he's me. Like, he's like I me, he read your that. speech. He read your speech. But you've called <laughs> this co-government. It is co-government, isn't it? We're worried about this here. A voice a voice to the Constitution, and yet Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, has said, well, I can't see any circumstance where we disagree with the expression of that voice. Don't know where that takes us. You're in that boat, aren't you? I know where it takes you. I worked in the Snowy Mountain Scheme and I also worked for BHP in Newcastle in the good old days uh, when, you know, the industry was massive. I tell you, in my time in Australia and all the time since, and I've followed very closely Aboriginal affairs, there is no one Aboriginal voice. They are a multitude Correct. of different voices. And to claim that you can have a voice in front of the Australian Parliament that's unified is as ridiculous as saying, and I'm not interfering with Australian politics here, I just want to say, to claim that there's a unified Maori voice in New Zealand is equally ridiculous. Absolutely. I mean, in your instance, these are ratepayers, Maori and non-Maori, who've paid on this Three Waters thing, I think your speech said, for the pipes and the dams and the stormwater drains and the sewerage plants, and that's being confiscated. And Ardern made no mention of any of this in her 2020 campaign manifesto, did she? Of course not. And here's the re really serious thing is, that they are so confused about the detail that the other day it emerged that they could actually uh, lease the, this is the new corporation managing it, lease the asset out for 35 years. Now, that is privatisation, basically, mm -hmm. excepting the reason why it's going into this new corporation, according to Jacinda Ardern and her troops, is that we don't want it to be privatised. I mean, every deception is being found out here. But here's the point. 
The South Island, you know, is a big big island in New Zealand. Yeah. The population that have got control with respect to the Māori there would be less than 4% of the South Island's population. The, major, the whole lot of people in the South Island are from all backgrounds, European uh, immigrants and what have you, including a whole lot of Māori who are not from the South Island. They'll all have to line up on one side, while a small elite, less than yes. 4%, will yes. have not... 50% of the say, yes. but in reality, 75% of the That's say. That's it. See, we had, the, we had <laughs> um, Winston, we had our Aboriginal Affairs Minister, Linda Burney here, telling the ABC that The Voice would tell the Parliament, quote, whether or not the Parliament is getting it right. Hey? So you're saying New Zealand is reaching the point of co-government with IWI, the largest social unit in New Zealand's Maori society, and that Ardern is going to allow these outfits to control the health services throughout New Zealand. I heard that statement and I came, it came to me in, in reality in this conclusion. I've never heard so much sickly white liberalism in my long career in another country. And I'm hearing what I saw in my country being unassailed uh, and not being pushed back like it should be, and now I'm hearing in Australia. And well, what have we got to do? Because... Winston, you're the most experienced politician, the longest-serving politician uh, across the ditch, there and over here. What do we do? Well, you've got to ask people to take an interest in politics for a start. It's no time to be a spectator. It's no time to sit on the sidelines. This is a game that people have got to join. And dare I say, people in business with a whole lot of money, need to have a very good idea what they're going to do with it. Because the idea that you can sit back and somehow it'll all work out for this time, as we go forward, is a very, very dangerous piece of comfort that they can't afford. Wonderful. Great to talk to you. Listen, we'll keep in touch, Winston. Congratulations on the speech. Those insights are really relevant to Australia. You keep well. And, uh, back a winner, by the Just way. One thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just one thing. Yep. I came to Parliament in 1978, but I spent six months in the court beating a cheat who tried to cheat me out of an election. So <laughs> I was dated back to, to 1978. That's my history, and I the fight goes on. You've learned a lot in between, I have to tell you. Lovely to talk to you, and we'll talk again, by the way. Yeah. Keep Thank in you. touch. And to all our New yeah. Zealand friends who are watching tonight, in, interesting insights and take notice of that advice. And to Australians... We're travelling down the same road, I have to tell you. That's Winston Peters, the former Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister of New Zealand. I made the point yesterday that Australia's new Prime Minister has had a significant makeover. He dresses superbly and the sentiments he's expressed, as with the Queen and other matters, bring him great credit. I also said yesterday, yesterday though, it was on policy that he would become unstuck. And I made reference to energy policy. I also have said that the business of calling a public holiday was unaffordable. On energy policy, one of my viewers has written this and I quote, as night follows day, the age of enlightenment heralded by the reign of Elizabeth I is now the age of endarkenment as we farewell the salad days of Elizabeth II and forsake the lessons that made Great Britain great. The Albanese pre-election promise, he writes, of smothering fossil fuels that enriched our lives with man-made laws pretending to control the climate, with empty promises that this can be done, have been passed into law. With a few outstanding exceptions, writes my correspondent, the watchdogs of the Senate have been asleep. And over the doors of an ill-informed and misinformed parliament, the entry portico should be embellished with the words, abandon hope, all ye who enter here.
unquote. Well, thank you, John, because the energy policy, which would have us believe that man can control climate, is unbelievably now law. Those who purport to represent us are planting the seeds of economic ruin. Then there's the public holiday to mourn. And here the public have also spoken. Nicole writes, quote, has the Prime Minister really thought this through? Did he consider the number of businesses such as restaurants and shops that will now have to pay everyone double time to remain open on that day? Did he consider casual workers who work weekdays only and will now lose income on that day? Unquote. Says Nicole, our school had a fundraiser planned for the 22nd. It was in the making for months. What do we do now? The sooner we become a republic, she writes, the better. Never have I been more ready for it. Well, Nicole, becoming a republic won't help you. These are issues of public policy. Heather writes, and she's spot on, quote, rather than punishing the economy, penalising those on casual work and other disruptions, we could honour our hardworking monarch who rarely, if ever, had a day away from duty by having a day of mourning that was not a public holiday, but a solemn one in which we kept working to our fullest capacity as a mark of respect for the way she fulfilled her role, unquote. How is it that I often think that people like Heather are smarter than those who purport to lead us? Steve says, quote, anyone who wishes to watch Elizabeth's funeral live on TV can do so on the evening of Monday, September 19. What's the point of a disruptive public holiday three days later, unquote? But John Papp sums it up best, quote, a public holiday is proclaimed with less than two weeks notice and insufficient time to manage cancelled clinics, treatments and surgeries, the Queen died. And to honour this, it seems other people are going to have to die as well." Unquote. Well, this is the point I'm making about leadership and public policy. Politicians get there into office and somehow believe they have a divine right to be right. I don't know about Mr Albanese and premiers, but I have felt a deep sense of mourning since I heard the news. And that sense of mourning continues to invade my thinking. I believe in the extraordinary benefits conferred on us by a constitutional monarchy. I understand what Australia in its formative years adopted from the British example, which gave us above all else a democracy, a system of government shared by only 21 nations in the world, 6.4% of the population. I'm grateful for our British heritage. I'm happy to honour the monarch. And in Elizabeth, one can simply say, we'll never see her like again. But she was a worker and we can honour her and mourn for her while we work. Never in recent times has the need been greater for this nation to get back to work. This is a policy position by the federal and state governments designed to earn some brownie points. It is sending all the wrong messages. Well, let's go to Peggy Grandy in America because since I last spoke to Peggy, we have witnessed the deaths of two significant world figures, the former Soviet president, Mikhail Gorbachev, and perhaps the finest diplomat we may ever know, Her Majesty the late Queen Elizabeth II. As you can see from the picture, Peggy Grandy knew both Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. She worked, as you know, for Ronald Reagan, and through that contact met Mikhail Gorbachev. So for insights, interesting, we're fascinated by this, can't wait. She joins us tonight. Peggy, thank you for your time. Um, Gorbachev, it's an interesting point, isn't it, that the Republican or Ronald Reagan haters want to credit Gorbachev with winning the Cold War, 
But that surely sidelines people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Alan, as always, for having me on. And let's get one thing straight. Mikhail Gorbachev did not win the Cold War. He lost the Cold War. The wall came down. The Soviet Union crumbled. But this is what the left likes to do. They love to rewrite history. But in fact, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, with maybe a little support as well from Pope John Paul II, in a masterful display of diplomacy, took something that was a win-loss and made it seem like a win-win. They gave Mikhail Gorbachev a graceful exit, which he smartly took because the Soviet Union was inevitable going to fall anyway. And so it's amazing what they try to do, but my credit would go to Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and maybe a little nudge from Pope John Paul II. <laughs> well. well said. Tell us the story about when you wrote your book and you reached out to Gorbachev and asked him if he would write a preview for it. Well, I told so many stories in my book about this former foe turned friend of Ronald Reagan and had observed firsthand their closeness of their relationship and really their genuine affection and respect for each other in many ways in their former presidency years. And so I wrote to Gorbachev after my book was um, finished and asked him if he would do a little blurb of endorsement for it. And here's this great communist who clearly had turned into a capitalist because he wrote back to me and said he'd be happy Happy to do that, but he would charge me a fee. <laughs> <laughs> so the devout communist had become an enterprising capitalist. Ronald Reagan would have been proud of him, wouldn't he? He would have. You know, Reagan used to always said, once people get a taste of freedom, they can't help but want more. And I think in this case, he got a taste of capitalism and he definitely wanted more. <laughs> yes. Well, Peggy, what about the money he would have raked in for promoting the Pizza Hut ad? Now, for those who can't remember, uh, we might as well play this a little bit of levity here. Have a look at this, will you? This is the communist leader making a big quid from pizza. Have a look at this. That's Gorbachev. Это из-за него у нас в экономике бардак. Да благодаря ему у нас новые возможности. Это из-за него у нас политическая нестабильность. Да благодаря ему у нас свобода. Полный хаос. Перспективы. Политическая нестабильность. Да благодаря ему у нас есть писахат. Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. <laughs> Peggy. <laughs> what? I had forgotten about that. Apparently he got bit by the Hollywood bug and Here's a man and what an interesting end to his life he has. You know, in so many ways, he's honored around the world and revered. But in his own country, he is a man in a lot of ways without a country these days. So mm. it's interesting, these twists of fate that yeah, come. Absolutely. And I was very honored to have had a chance to <laughs> meet him and know him. Now, what has been the reaction in America to the passing of Queen Elizabeth? Wow. Well, what an end of an era and a historic passing of an incredible woman. And 
while we, of course, mourn her passing at the age of 96, what an incredible life she lived. And so we have to celebrate that. And especially for young women who look at her and think this is a vow she took at a very young age that she kept up with dignity, with faith with integrity for decade after decade after decade. And so, you know, you may have known her as your queen, but um, she was really the queen to the rest of the world and she will be sorely missed. I don't know that we will ever see anybody like her in our lifetime again. She was a very special woman who lived up to a very large calling. Beautiful, beautifully said. What happens, you've had a lot of talk now as to what's going on with the funeral and behind the scenes, you've had some experience in this field when someone like this passes on, uh, what does happen? Yeah, well, it's almost surreal kind of watching this because I do know from behind the scenes working with President Reagan for 10 years and then he lived for five years even after that. So for 15 years that I was affiliated with him and then back to when he was president, there's a plan that's in place. And this plan gets reviewed yearly, if not more than that. And we go over it line by line, moment by moment, day by day. And you put it on the shelf or file it away in your computer and you know that someday you're gonna have to recall it. And when you pull that binder off the shelf and you open that document and look at it and you pencil in a date for day one and you know that this timeline has begun, there's this sense of, finality and sadness. And it's mm. almost surreal. You've gone over it so many times and now you're actually making it happen. And in the midst of it all is the pomp and circumstance and the ceremony and the protocols that are very public. But behind that, there's also a family. Um, you know, she was, the queen was also a mother. She was a grandmother. She was a great grandmother. And so there's this very personal aspect to something that's very public. Yes. And for me, it was really a time of holding myself together, serving the president as long and as best as I could to the very end. And then later and only later, do you have a chance to really address your own personal grief and loss? Mm, beautiful. I mean, as you said, she was a light of goodness and peace in what is today a rather dark and tumultuous world. I mean, we always say no one's irreplaceable. I think she is. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? To think of an individual who lived her entire life in the service of others. And we talk about glass ceilings, you made the point, very little recognition is given to the fact that here was a young woman at 25, mixing it with some of the biggest political figures in the world and holding her own. I mean, Churchill was 78. That was her first prime minister. He was born in 1874. Her last prime minister was Liz Truss, whom she shook hands with two days before she died. And Liz Truss was born in 1975. It's hard to get your head around it, isn't it, Peggy? Really incredible. And she had a way of connecting with everybody. And whether you were male or female, young or old, she had a way of finding connections. And, you know, I got to hear a lot about her relationship with President Reagan. He kept a photo of her and Prince Philip in his office every day in the post-presidency. He also had a picture of the two of them riding horseback at Windsor That's Castle. Right. And so there was a fondness. There was a personal relationship. They shared a devotion to country, a love of horses, a patriotism. And they shared a love of freedom. And even though the queen stayed out of politics, we certainly knew where she stood and she stood on the side of freedom. And even during the Cold War, she made her opinions known and she was a great ally for the US and a friend that we will dearly, dearly miss. Wonderful, beautifully said. And of course, 
At the end of the day, Peggy, mortality spares nobody. I just want to raise this issue with you before we go today, before it gets off the agenda a bit. I was staggered to read in relation to student loans in America, two points. The cumulative federal student loan debt is 1.6 trillion, involving 45 million borrowers. Now, Biden is going to cancel a $10,000 debt for most of those borrowers. Now, Democrats typically have praised the initiative. Many have argued it isn't enough. But Penny, surely this is a slap in the face to every family who sacrificed to save for college and every graduate who paid their debt and every other American who chose a different career path to avoid the debt. Many of these taxpayers in America who are going to be funding the $10,000 have never got inside a university gate. What's the feeling? Right. Well, people are outraged. And of course, there's a very small handful that maybe are celebrating a little bit of waiving of their college debt. But I think of the plumbers and the hairdressers and the bus drivers who, in essence, are getting a bill from the federal government for $2,500 for somebody to go to Harvard. And I thought the left was the party of the poor that does nothing for the poor rather than strap them with debt for somebody who's gone to college. And don't we always say that college is the gateway to opportunity? And that's the pathway to wealth and to opportunity and to, um, to having choices in life. And yet, what are we doing? We're tipping the scales in favor of those who already have the greatest advantages. So I'm not sure what Biden gains from this. It's no new demographic. He already has the academic elite in his back pocket. And so he's outraged many more people than he's helped by this. So I'm not sure what he has in mind, but you know, Margaret Thatcher said it best. Social, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. He's running out of the American people's money. He's raising inflation. He's raised the national debt. And he certainly is running out of patience from the American people for spending our money on things that are not priorities for us. Brilliant, 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 Peggy. We'll leave it there. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for the insights. Thank you for your understanding of the issues and talking in the language that people out there understand. We'll talk to you next week. There she is. How outstanding you, is that extraordinary presentation. Peggy Grandy in America. Even Queen Elizabeth would say that life must go on, and it certainly does, but we shouldn't imagine that the battles that must be fought will be easily won. I've talked about the Great Reset, reordering the world and its traditional values. It's a bit of a cliche, but we sent men and women to war to fight for freedom. One of those freedoms is freedom of speech. I've said over and over again that in today's world, people, you out there, are frightened to say what you believe. I've often spoken about the post-war Marxist manifesto by the former FBI agent, not a Russian, former FBI agent, W. Kleen Skusen in 1960. Now you can't make this stuff up, former FBI agent. The manifesto was titled The Naked Communist. And it was clear about reordering Western values and institutions to a one world government under the United Nations. Say this today and you're a conspiracist, but it's happening. The manifesto talked about capturing one or both of the major American political parties, of using the courts to weaken American institutions, of schools becoming transmission belts for socialist propaganda, of softening up the curriculum, of abolishing loyalty oaths. Can anyone honestly assert that this hasn't already arrived? It talked about infiltrating the media and controlling editorial writing. We are becoming a one idea nation. We're a whole raft of things you're not allowed to say. 
key positions in radio, television and film go to sympathetic presenters, we've already been captured. And the weakness of Western political leadership, as in Biden, makes it open season. Australia has opened its door to this stuff as well. Tony Abbott stood up against it in speeches and in policy. The left didn't miss him. Remember the previous Liberal Prime Minister Morrison, who said he had no interest in the debate about growing wokeness? His words, there's a lot of talk about all of this. And if people are enough, are woke enough, or they're not woke enough, or they're too woke, who cares? Mark Latham and I have talked about this critical race theory in the school curriculum, where everything is argued from the point of view of race. We're now talking about altering the constitution by referendum to accommodate race. Anti-capitalist teachings take place in the classroom. Indoctrinated children take days off school to protest in favour of Black Lives Matter and climate change. No child standing, hang on, I don't agree with this stuff. No, 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 they've been brainwashed. Universities are hotbeds of opposition to unfashionable views. Open debate is frowned upon. Now, whatever you might think of the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, he's a former Rhodes Scholar, splendidly educated and a former Prime Minister. Only two weeks ago, he was prevented from speaking at the Sydney University Law Society event, boycotted by members of the Student Representative Council, who called him ruling class scum and wouldn't listen to anyone below him Malcolm Turnbull rightly called it a, quote, dreadful state of affairs and, quote, a very sad day for his alma mater and argued that free speech no longer existed on campus if it was in the hands of protesters and loudspeakers. Said Mr Turnbull, quote, it is just complete fascism. Well, my concern here is that a highly intelligent man like Malcolm Turnbull rose to the position of Prime Minister and did nothing about the indoctrination of kids in the classroom or at university, which has led to the kind of attitudes that he confronted. Mr Turnbull made the excellent point. It was for the university, he said, to explain whether it would be run by protesters. And he repeated his point. There is no free speech at Sydney University unless the people with the loud hailers allow it to happen, unquote. And then added, I don't know why they are paying the Senate and officials of the university if they're not in charge of their own campus, unquote. Well, the head of the law school has today, quote, reiterated our commitment to safe and respectable debate and discussion, unquote. And that, quote, the disruption of the student organised Sydney University Law Society event is inconsistent with the values which Mr Turnbull's alma mater stands for, unquote. This is rhetoric crap, rhetoric bilge. Words, but no action and words without action are meaningless. But may I respectfully ask former Prime Minister Turnbull, what are we paying our politicians for if they don't understand the damage that's being done by indoctrination in our classrooms and universities? I might add in relation to Mr Turnbull, that it was the president of the Student Representative Council who showered abuse on the former Prime Minister, and that student leader happens to be the daughter of the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions. One wonders what sort of discussions are taking place in that home. To prove my point, if proof were needed, we are all aware, well, I was going to say that, I should rephrase that because in the modern education system, I wonder what young people are taught. Do they know about UNESCO? An acronym for the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, but it's an arm of the UN, which is funded to the tune of approximately $12 billion. Donald Trump 
rightly froze all funding from the UN in 2017. But now we have a Paris-based UN Education Agency, UNESCO, which has released a major report, no publicity about this, which escalates the UN's war on ideas and information and virtually describes disagreement as a conspiracy theory that causes, quote, significant harm, disagreement, and quote, fosters and reinforces harmful thinking patterns and reduces trust in public institutions. And of course, amongst the conspiracy theories are those which argue against climate change alarmism. And in this report, teachers are encouraged to report to authorities any such student who opens his or her mouth on such matters. What did the Marxist manifesto say about reordering Western values? That schools should become transmission belts for socialist propaganda. They already are. The irony is Malcolm Turnbull had the power to do something about this, yet still in the halls of power, those who should be doing something are still doing nothing. Before we go, wherever you are, sit down and get your head around this. Let me take you back to September 2014, when the former Margaret Thatcher advisor, Christopher Monckton, the third Viscount Monckton of Brenchley, dropped a bombshell in Australia when speaking to me on air, Lord Monckton said, quote, Tony Abbott is a very good man and he's known to the forces of darkness to be a very good man. They hate him. Lord Monckton said the elites knew Prime Minister Abbott wouldn't sign the United Nations Paris Climate Accord to force Australia to reduce its emissions drastically. As a result, Monckton told me they, quote, need to guard Abbott's back because the Turnbull faction in conjunction with the UN will be doing their absolute best to remove him from office before December 2015 so that they can get a 100% wall-to-wall Marxist agreement in Paris. Well, barely five months after Moncton's speech, Turnbull moved an unsuccessful leadership motion against Mr Abbott, and eventually Abbott was removed. The rest is history. Well, Lord Moncton has done it again. In a recent interview with an Italian newspaper, the former Margaret Thatcher advisor gave several insights into the Green Revolution. I've been warning you of this, to which Australia has tragically fallen victim, Albanese, Bowen and co, and not much different on the other side. Moncton revealed that, quote, for decades, the disinformation directorate of the KGB and its successor body, the FSB, which is the Federal Security Service, Russian, together with Chinese agents of influence, such as the Confucius Institutes at Western universities, have been working via communist-led environmentalist front groups, such as Greenpeace, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Oxfam, Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion, to promote global warming alarm with the declared aim of destroying the economic hegemony of the West. Lord Moncton went on, quote, one of the directorate's first targets was Greenpeace, one of whose founders, Dr. Patrick Moore, has said that when the communists moved in, he and other true environmentalists were driven out, unquote. Well, Lord Moncton has a plan to ward off this existential threat, which he says, quote, is greatly benefiting the two communist-led states, Russia and China. Are our politicians listening? First, he says we need, quote, a debate on whether the science behind the climate scam is soundly based. Next, he says Western nations, quote, 
should make immediate plans to design and construct as many new coal-fired power stations as necessary, unquote. Third, all bans on fracking should be, quote, immediately lifted, and all subsidies to wind, solar power and electric vehicles should be scrapped. Legislation, he said, must be passed to ensure social media platforms, quote, can no longer ban, shadow ban, or otherwise stifle or silence those who choose not to follow the communist position on climate, unquote. Similar legislation, he says, should also be passed to, quote, prosecute environmentalists and environmental organisations for fraud when they profiteer by deliberately making inaccurate or pseudo-scientific claims, unquote. There's your plan. If only Australian politicians were prepared to even consider these proposals. That'd be a start and surely a reasonable start. But if not, what is our future? That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8pm. You are watching ADH and I'm Alan Jones. Good night.